We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the When you hear Muslims, especially the new type of Muslims called Palestinians, speaking about Israel, all you ever hear is blind hatred directed at that nation and the Jews. Well, the Zionists. In the last program, I told you about the subtle distinction that had grown up. It was supposedly not anti-Semitic to say that you hated Zionists. It was anti-Semitic to say that you hate Jews. But since a Zionist is a person who wants a Jewish homeland, that doesn't leave many Jews out. All of the problems that the Jews have suffered in the world since the conquest of their land by the Arabs in 635 AD could have been avoided to a great extent if they had had a separate country of their own to go to for sanctuary. That would be the country that has been theirs for 2,500 years before the Arab conquest armies arrived. To put it in modern left jargon, the colonialists, the Muslims and the Arabs, want to keep their colonies and deny them to the indigenous people who lived there before the Muslim colonialists arrived. Largely since the arrival of the Muslim empires, and especially from 1900 onwards, the Muslim regime and influential Muslims occupying the Jewish homeland had been doing everything possible to stop Jews from other parts of the world going back there. Anyone else could go there, but not Jews, because it was their homeland. I talked about this in parts 9 and 10 of this series. As long as I can remember for my entire life, is that Muslims, with very few exceptions, feel exactly the same way about Israel and the Jews. They really want the nation of Israel wiped from the map and all of the Jews driven into the sea. Except that it isn't actually how a lot of the Muslims feel. And when you think about it, that's not surprising. There are always people of goodwill who want peace and to resolve differences peaceably, especially differences that would otherwise end in war. But we're not seeing any of those in the Middle East. So why don't we ever hear from those Muslims? Well, the answer is disturbing. I'm going to look at what happened from the time of the British Mandate until the start of the Second World War. In later programs, I'm going to talk about the violence directed at the Jews by the Muslims after the 1920 Easter riots. But in this program, I'm mostly going to talk about the violence directed by the most radical Muslims, the only voice we ever hear today speaking on behalf of Palestinians, the handy name invented in 1968 for these people, against moderate Muslims who had been willing to work out a peaceful solution about the creation of a homeland for the Jews. After the great Mufti was appointed by the British, he organised gangs to enforce his ideas, mainly that there should be no Jewish homeland. This inevitably led to more severe anti-Jewish riots in 1921 and then to the great massacres of August 1929, which I'll talk about in another program. Simon Sebag Montefiore, in his book Jerusalem, a biography, 
quotes a British historian who said of the Grand Mufti, Hajj Amin al-Husseini, that he is a megalomaniac who presented himself as the leader of the whole Islamic world. The increased stature of the Grand Mufti really got its most important boost in December 1931. That was when the Grand Mufti stepped out onto the world stage. He presided and paraded himself as a pan-Islamic, the unrivaled international Muslim leader at this World Islamic Conference, held on the Temple Mount. Simon Sibag Montefiore tells us that it was his finest hour, and he says it totally went to his head. He remained radically opposed to any Zionist colony in Palestine for the whole of his life. This is still today the standard Muslim position on the question of having a Jewish nation in their midst, even though it's on the land that had been the Jewish homeland for 2,500 years before the Muslim conquest of it in 635 AD. The Grand Mufti's rivals, the great families of Palestine, the Nashashibi family, headed by Mayor Nashashibi, the Mayor of Jerusalem, the Dijanis family, family that had been entrusted by Solomon in the mid-1550s with protecting the Nabi Daud, the tomb of the Muslim prophet David, same man as the Jewish king who is not a prophet to them or to the Christians, and the Khalidis family who ran the Sharia law courts. All of them argued that conciliation would be better for both the Arabs and the Jews. But the Grand Mufti was very woke, even before there was woke. He knew that there was only one correct point of view, and that that was his. Like the New York Times over the Senator Cotton piece, part 19 of my CYKIAE programs on woke, the Grand Mufti was not going to let the moderates ruin his plan to get rid of the Jews entirely. The Grand Mufti accused his rivals of being pro-Zionist traitors. Another popular insult that seems damaging in the eyes of people like the Grand Mufti and probably in the eyes of the Muslims in general, thrown like mud by the Grand Mufti, accused the Nashashibi family of secretly having Jewish blood. Nashashibi tried to get the Grand Mufti removed from the Supreme Muslim Council, but failed. The Grand Mufti countered this move by successfully having his opponents excluded from all of the many and important organisations he controlled. The British, either rejoicing in the lack of progress towards creating a Jewish state that was possible thanks to the unintended help of the Grand Mufti, or just because they were weak and unsure of themselves, both of these factors seem to have played a part, leaned towards supporting the radicals like the Grand Mufti instead of the moderates. The radicals and the British seemed to have many of the same goals. Hitler's coming to power in January 1933 would eventually create a crisis for the Muslims in Palestine, who wanted to stop a Jewish homeland coming into existence. The anti-Jewish views of the Nazis were no secret, even though it would be another five years before it would be screamingly obvious, even to the thickest person, that the Jews were really going to have to get out of Germany and go to the only place that they should have been able to go to, Palestinian homeland. This was the danger for the Muslims wanting to stop any Jewish homeland being created. 
If the Jews reacted to Hitler by leaving Europe and returning to their promised land, then even with the best will in the world, the British would have had to bring the Jewish state into existence, even if they didn't want to, as I speculated, had become their point of view in part 16 of this series. The Germans under Adolf Hitler offered the Muslims many things. One of them was a vision that must have reinforced for them their age-old Islamic vision of the one Muslim state, the Ummah, because the Nazi conception of the Volk was similar. The Nazi worldview of German nationalism was the people, the Volk, a united Muslim world stretching from Morocco on the Atlantic coast of Africa to Iraq on the edge of Russia based on their common religion, Islam. Well, a Jewish state sitting plumb in the middle of that destroyed the whole concept, the whole aesthetics of the thing. One of the Ba'athist leaders in Iraq, the clan of Saddam Hussein, wrote of these times, We were racists, admiring Nazism, reading its books. We were first to think of translating Mein Kampf. Whoever lived during this period in Damascus would appreciate the inclination of the Arab people to Nazism, for Nazism was the power which could serve as its champion. The Grand Mufti, with Hitler now in charge of Germany, was able to get funding from Hitler's Nazi Germany and also from Mussolini's fascist Italy. Inspired by Adolf Hitler, in Palestine, the Husseini clan, the Grand Mufti's clan, founded the Palestinian Arab Party under Jamal Husseini. Jamal boasted that he had modelled it on the Nazi party. There were a lot of efforts to try to resolve the question of the Jewish homeland by talking about it. The Jews were always happy to talk about it. One senior British official said that the Jews were always willing to talk and the Muslims were never willing to. The most important enemy that the Grand Mufti had to go right up to and smash were the moderate Muslim leaders, the landowners who were willing to sell their land to the Jews and any other Muslims who the Grand Mufti believed was not enthusiastically on board with his program. The Grand Mufti's key henchman was Emil Gouri. David Price Jones, in his book Closed Circle, wrote, These poor people were not always immediately murdered. Sometimes they were kidnapped and taken to the mountainous areas under rebel control. They were thrown into pits infested with snakes and scorpions. After spending a few days there, the victims, if still alive, were brought before one of the rebel courts or commanders, tried, and usually sentenced to death, or, as a special dispensation, to severe flogging. The terror was so strong that no one, including ulema, meaning learned men, and priests dared to prepare the proper burial services. In some cases, the British police had to perform this duty. In others, the corpses were left in the streets for several days after Oshu had been placed in the mouth of the victim as a symbol of disgrace and as a lesson to others. David Price Jones says that entire clans of Muslims who objected to the Grand Mufti's policy were either wiped out or exiled. The total number of Palestinians murdered was in the thousands, and 40,000 Muslims were driven into exile. In 1934, the new British High Commissioner, Sir Arthur Warhope, 
withdrew his backing from Nashashibi as mayor of Jerusalem and backed the election of one of the Khalidi clan as mayor. The result of this was intensified rivalry between the Husseinis and the Nashashibis. On 19 April 1936, the Muslims of Palestine, through a body called the Higher Arab Committee, started preparation for a national strike against the British administration, responsible for bringing into existence the Jewish homeland. The strike quickly turned into an armed insurrection against the British, although apparently not at the institution of the Grand Mufti at the beginning. The majority of the Muslims in Palestine had already come from surrounding countries, but with the uprising, even more recruits came from Syria, Iraq and Transjordan to smash the Zionists, that is, the Jews who wanted their own homeland, to end their, so far, never-ending persecution. The revolt at first subsided, but then exploded again. But this time, the Grand Mufti welcomed the armed insurrection. It was a chance too good to be true, to kill his enemies. No, not, not who you're thinking of, not the Jews. I'm talking about other rival Muslim groups who were willing to find a peaceful way forward. There was no room for people like that. One British historian wrote, It seems that the Mufti was personally responsible for establishing internecine terror as a means of control. Gangs in the pay of the Grand Mufti, numbering several thousand, imposed a reign of terror on the country during the strikes. For three years, they maintained the revolt by torturing and murdering Arab dissenters while seeking out Jewish victims when and where they could get them. Through much of the uprising, the British army withheld fire, continuing its policy that began in the 1920 Easter riots of disarming the Jews and at the same time allowing weapons and Arab volunteers from neighbouring countries to pour across the border to join the Grand Mufti's forces. In all, more than 500 Jews were killed out of a total Jewish population of a few hundred thousand. Surveying the carnage, British Colonel Richard Meinertzhagen saw what was coming for British control and influence in that part of the world. He wrote, God, how we have let the Jews down, and if we are not careful, we shall lose all the eastern Mediterranean, Iraq, and everything which counts in the Middle East. Simon Sebag Montefiore wrote in his book Jerusalem, the Biography, Over his favourite meal of lentil soup, the Mufti always accompanied by his Sudanese bodyguards, descended from the Haram's traditional watchman, behaved like a mafia boss as he ordered assassinations that in two years of fratricide wiped out many of his most decent and moderate compatriots. Not long after the Peel report was released, another British attempt to weasel out of its clear obligations under the British mandate to create a Jewish homeland on their God-given lands, the Grand Mufti visited the German consulate in Jerusalem, representing the Nazi government of Adolf Hitler. He expressed his sympathy for Nazism and his wish to cooperate with the Führer. He would do that over the coming years with an extreme fanaticism and enthusiasm for their shared goals of exterminating the Jews. Joan Peters, in her book From Time Immemorial, wrote, The one collaboration during the Second World War that has been clearly overlooked was the symbiotic relationship between Muftism and Nazism. 
She notes, by way of background, that on 13 August 1920, Hitler gave a two-hour speech in Munich about why we are against the Jews. In that speech, he first used what was to become the popular motto, Anti-Semites of the world, unite! People of Europe, free yourselves! Hitler doesn't seem to have been afraid to accept being called an anti-Semitic rather than being called an anti-Zionist, like the squeamish Muslims were hiding behind. The Grand Mufti was not the only one enthusiastically killing Muslims. A man who could perhaps be called a precursor of today's Islamic State, a Syrian preacher by the name of Sheikh Izzat al-Din al-Qassam, who had been working as a junior official in the Grand Mufti's Sharia court in Haifa, led his own revolt against the British. As a religious fanatic, he and his jihadi followers enthusiastically killed any Arabs suspected of cooperating with the British. This fanned the flames of a brutal civil war among the Muslims themselves. The expression that the Grand Mufti made many families weep came into wide use against the Muslims at this time. Simon Sebag Montefiore, in his book Jerusalem the Biography, describes the two leading families in Jerusalem, the Husseinis and the Nashashibis, as feuding to such an extent that they were Jerusalem's Montagues and Capulets, the famous warring families of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Rugheb Nashashibi had originally supported the Grand Mufti's revolt, but turned against the terror that he was using and the strategy that he was pursuing to crush any hope of a Jewish homeland. For his betrayal, his villa was raked with machine gun fire and his nephew was killed while watching a football game. Falkri Bey Nashashibi accused the Grand Mufti of having a destructive egotism. The Grand Mufti issued a death warrant for him, which was published in the newspapers. He was later assassinated in Baghdad. The Grand Mufti's main henchman in Jerusalem was Abd al-Qadir Husseini. Abd al-Qadir Husseini commanded the revolt for the Grand Mufti in Jerusalem. He was 30 years old and commander of a body called the Holy War Army. He was the son of the late Musa Kazem Husseini. He used the war name of Abu Musa. He'd come from a privileged background. He'd been educated at the Anglican Bishop Gobat's school on Mount Zion, the best school in Jerusalem. At his graduation from Cairo University, he denounced the British and the Zionist conspiracy against the Muslims in Palestine. For his efforts, the British expelled him from Egypt. He then organised the Grand Mufti's Palestine Arab Party, edited its newspaper, and set up under cover of the Boy Scouts what was to become the military wing of the Palestine Arab Army. At first, his Boy Scouts organisation was given the disturbing name of the Nazi Scouts, perhaps an none-too-subtle name that would, with time, have aroused British concern and even hostility. It was rebranded as the Green Hand Militia, which later morphed into the military wing of the Palestine Arab Party. At home, Abd al-Qadir Husseini was an elegant nobleman, sporting a pencil moustache and wearing an English suit. He looked equally dashing, and the part when he was on the run, in the field, riding shotgun and fighting. Wasif Jawarevich, the famous Oud player and diarist from those times, noted that he had often humiliated the colonial forces around Jerusalem. 
Abdul Qatir Hosseini was wounded in 1936 in a battle against British tanks near Hebron, but after his wounds were treated in Nazi Germany, he returned to fight on from his base in John the Baptist village, Ein Kerem. In Jerusalem, he organised the assassination of a British police chief. He was wounded again when an RAF aircraft strafed his position. His admirers regarded him as an Arab knight who gave up luxury so that he could fight alongside Arab peasants against the infidel intruders. But that noble heroic view of him wasn't shared by everyone. His Palestinian enemies saw him as one of the worst of the Grand Mufti's warlords. His lieutenants and lackeys terrorised villagers that didn't support the Husseinis. The Nashashibi clan responded by arming their supporters, known as the Nashashibi units or peace bands. They waged war against the Grand Mufti's men. Both warring factions had their own distinctive dress. The Grand Mufti's people wore the kefiyah, the checked scarf, traditional dress for Muslim men that became associated later with the Palestinian Liberation Organization created by the Grand Mufti's nephew Yasser Arafat. More generally, it is known worldwide today as representing the poor oppressed Palestinians. I'll talk more about them in later parts of this series. The British have begun to get cold feet about the whole idea of creating a Jewish homeland and were looking for a way out. They'd been looking for a way out since before they took the appointment, which was all about implementing their idea in the Balfour Declaration of creating a Jewish state. Putting it into its historical context, this can hardly be seen as surprising. The Muslims had areas where oil had been found, they had territory which gave enormous coverage that the British Empire could usefully use. What could the Jews offer? In a critical period of the problems between the British, the Jews and the Muslims, the Prime Minister of England for a long part of the time was Neville Chamberlain. In 1938, he would sell the Czechs down the river to Adolf Hitler, and he would soon do the same to the Jews. But let me finish up on the great strike against the British. In October 1936, the Grand Mufti called off the strike. The strike was called off when the British government appointed a former cabinet member, Earl Peel, to investigate and report on what could be done, should be done, about the future of the British mandate. This was an exceedingly strange thing to do when the terms of the mandate clearly set out what the British were there for and what they were supposed to be doing. The League of Nations had, had implemented the mandate setting out the Balfour Declaration. The British object was simple, to create a homeland for the Jews. Terror against moderate Muslims, of course, continues to this day. You never hear a Muslim voice saying anything other than the approved narrative against the Jews. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites. <laughs>